In today's episode, we wildly mispronounce Alice Krieger's name over and over again. To Alice and the entire Krieger hive, we do apologize. Hello and welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where I'm Chris Kelly. And I'm Brie Callahan. And we show each other our favorite movies. This week is my turn and I'm going to show Brie Star Trek First Contact. Brie, tell me everything you know about Star Trek First Contact. Well, last week I asked you if William Shatner was in it, so... um... I feel like that might tell you a lot. Okay, so I know that there was a William Shatner one. I know the name John Luke Picard. Mm -hmm. And then I know there was one that Kate Mulvaney ran. Kate Mulgrew? Sure. Fuck is Kate Mulvaney. Oh, I'm thinking of Mick Mulvaney. (laughs) 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 He's also Irish. It's fine. Um, Presumably. I don't know shit about Star Trek, to be perfectly honest. I have seen one possibly both at least one of the new star treks that star chris pine but not enough to watch them a second time it's just kind of like eh. i'm definitely a star wars versus a star trek person interesting so this is the second movie from the star trek the next generation cast okay you'll be sort of at a loss both in that you haven't watched the tv series And I don't remember how much shit from the first movie is integrated. This might have no value as a standalone whatsoever. (laughs) You don't even know if there's anything I need to know before I watch this movie? No, but I, you know, I have one (laughs) thing that I am going to drop in here that I think is going to get you all in. Okay. This is an Alfre Woodard picture. Fuck you. Oh my God. Okay, I'm in. I don't even need to know more. Let's do this. I want to watch it tonight. Yeah, we have discussed previously amongst ourselves, if not with the audience, that I have a weird ability to recall exact Alfre Woodard line readings, and I definitely have a couple (laughs) from this movie. Okay, so is she in the show also or just in these films? She is just in this particular movie. She's not in other Star Trek works. Well, it has to be improved by her mere presence alone, so... It is. I'm on board. On board the Enterprise... Yeah, no, no. The Enterprise is the right one. You did it. Oh, no, I know. I just stopped the joke because I thought the joke was bad. But then you encouraged (laughs) me more. So here we are. Are we not doing bad jokes anymore? Because I should go. Oh, I have nothing but bad jokes. You've seen the Twitter account. My God, it's a mess out there. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, I encourage you to take many notes on Star Trek First Contact. And I am eager to hear all of them when we return. We'll be back from the break just after this. Welcome back from the break. We have all watched First Contact, or at least Bree and I have. I'm going to go over some quick facts about this. This is the second in the series of the next generation Star Trek movies. It was written by Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore, directed by Jonathan Frakes, who also stars alongside Patrick Stewart, Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn, Gates McFadden, Marina Sirtis, Alfre Woodard, James Cromwell, Alice Kriege, I want to say, and Neil McDonough. It is the story of the Enterprise crew as they go back in time to stop the Borg from stopping their first contact with alien civilization. It gets more complicated than that, but we'll go over all of it. This was the most successful Star Trek movie until the reboot with Chris Pine. So that's like a fun fact that this is as good as it gets for Star Trek movies. (laughs) I loved this movie when I was 16 when it came out. Before we start the conversation, I just want to apologize for making you watch this because I definitely watched this with a mounting sense of cringe. Like, oh God, this is not anywhere near as good as I thought it was at the time. And like, I I, I just want, by the end of it, I very much wanted to die. Uh, Brian, what did you think of this movie? Okay, I didn't want to die, but it did take me... Probably three hours to watch this two hour movie because I kept like taking breaks to like check Twitter and do things that were like a little bit more. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't bad. Like the story was kind of interesting, but it definitely did have a real vibe of a made for TV movie rather than like a theatrical release. 
And it was about a half an hour too long. Yeah. I mean, it should be noted that the two writers are two Star Trek TV writers. The director is obviously one of the co-stars of the show and also a TV director. This is his uh, film directing debut. Oh, I didn't know that. I also did not know that Jonathan Frakes directed it. So that actually makes a lot of sense. And just in general... You can feel that this was made specifically for people who already watch the show. Yeah. As an outsider, it took me a long time to get into the threat of the Borg because Borg is a very funny word and you don't actually see the Borg for quite some time. Like you obviously there's the initial flashback for Picard and it was not clear to me as someone who has not watched the show if that is something that really happened. I've subsequently like read the Wikipedia article about the episode across the seasons where like he gets converted into a Borg. So I was just kind of like, Borg (laughs) for like a solid 20 minutes until they're actually introduced. I will say like the sort of very manual body horror of it once they are introduced is pretty effective. But yeah, this is really pitched at people who have already watched Next Generation. It's Next Generation, right? I don't even know. Like, it what. is Next okay. yeah. And was Next Generation still going on while when this movie came out? No, this is the first movie they made after the series had ended. Actually, that like leaves me with a question, which was that all of the costumes and a lot of like the sets and stuff still feel very like made for TV. And I assume that it was still on and they didn't want to like up the ante on like a going to sort of like a movie film level budgets for some of these items because they would have to like go back down to the TV production level like when it came back on in the air. Oh, I regret to inform you (laughs) that this is a step up from what was available on the TV show. (laughs) All of the costumes, including like the Starfleet uniforms are all redesigned. All of the Borg stuff is much better than it was on TV. And I think that's actually where most of the budget went. And they still look somewhat janky in this but if you could see the tv episodes like this is better than they had before okay (laughs) there's a lot going on here like there's just a lot of choices that are really strange like for instance if we can just start like right at the top the credits went on for like most of my lifetime and it was just like a blue fade-in of a name a blue fade in and of a name. And I was just like, if this is for you, I guess that's great. But like, I'm going to have a stroke. Like I had to look away. Like I couldn't even watch it. It was an insane choice. <laughs> so long. But again, it felt like a TV episode. Like TV shows have an opening theme song and opening credits. And I think that that was just like the paradigm everyone was working in, whether or not it made a lick of sense. It also would have been a great opportunity to introduce the names of the characters everyone was playing because they blatantly do not do that. Yeah, I still don't know who LeVar Burton plays because I haven't watched the show. I knew LeVar Burton was on the show. I was surprised to see him without his like eye visor, which also wasn't explained. But Jonathan Frakes' character is I think only referred to as number one. And I thought that was his name. And I thought it was incredibly strange. I had to like go look on the Wikipedia page to find out that his name was like Riker or Strikers. <laughs> Obviously, I knew that like Picard was in charge. But after that, it was just like a fucking free for all as far as I was concerned. I thought like Data was the number two. Uh, yeah, again, if you came in not having watched several years of the show, there is no reason for you to know any of this. And I was stunned at how little they even tried to explain, because even as someone who watched the show, there are nuances of this that I forgot. And I was like, wow, I have no guideposts to follow beyond my own memory from when I was in high school. And that seems like blatantly not enough. Yeah, there's that one woman named Deanna or something who gets drunk in the bar with James Cromwell. Absolutely no idea who she is. Again, I've now subsequently looked up the Wikipedia page and I'm like, oh, she's like their counselor and an empath. It seems like she might have been really useful in some way. The characterization of Deanna Troy in this is so hilarious because the way that they signal that she is an empath is that whenever something happens, she will turn to someone and be like, what's wrong? As like a way to show that she senses that something is wrong. But that's like the bare minimum that anyone could do in this situation (laughs) is be like, well, what's wrong? Like, she's not helping. (laughs) She's not like 
you seem sad about this specific issue, which is like what you would think. I, of course, like went down a wiki hole and I'm like, oh, well, it's because she's like only half of whatever species like does the whole thing. Whatever. Obviously, Worf is also there. And my vague knowledge of the series is that like there used to be some like fighting or tension between his species and the Enterprise, but like now they're all on the same team, blah, 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 blah. He's like a fan favorite, right? Yeah, that was another introduction where like, when he walks onto the bridge, there's like a lot of weight behind it in like a vague sense. Yeah. But if you didn't know that like he used to be part of the Enterprise crew and then went on to be captain of his own ship and is now back on the Enterprise, then like there's no reason for everyone to like take a beat when he's back on the bridge. It's like, what? who the fuck is the guy with the forehead? <laughs> and this may be the problem of having a star of the show also be the director of the movie. He's obviously so enmeshed within the universe that like it probably didn't occur to him that he needed to take a step and like introduce some of the characters. I mean, that's why it was shocking to me that this is regarded as one of the best Star Trek movies. Because I'm like, if you're not a Star Trek fan, this does nothing to invite you in. Like, this shouldn't have any acknowledgement from people who don't watch the series because it is blatantly opaque to the people who don't already know what's going on. The one thing that I think is really good is kind of the introduction of the ship in Picard's initial flashback because I actually had to look to see what year this movie was again because I thought, I figured this was a ripoff of The Matrix, but it turns out that it's actually possibly the opposite. But like they do a good job of setting all that up. But then once the Borg are actually on the ship, they don't explain at all that the Borg will ignore you except under certain circumstances. Like how will you know once you're a threat? Like it it just it it made it really hard to know if they were in danger or not. I have questions about that formulation of logic from the Borg too. I get that like they are machines and logical and they won't be dissuaded from their path unless something is actively impeding them. Like the crew doesn't bother them, so there's no need to stop what they're doing. But also like if I was repairing a computer, but there were ants all over it, I'd still kill all of those ants. Yeah, and it also kind of like raises the question of if the Borg are a species that are trying to like assimilate everyone they meet into their collective, why not just assimilate everyone you meet? If we want to get into it, literally nothing about the current Borg plan makes sense. The plan to attack Earth without landing and assimilating seems counterintuitive. Like, if we're going back in time because we need to save Earth from being assimilated by the Borg, there's no point at which the Borg go to Earth to start assimilating. Yeah, it would be really smart of the Borg to just land and be like, hello, <laughs> how are you guys? It's first contact. Um, Can you come over here and I'm going to stick this little thing in your neck? It's a poor decision all around from what is ostensibly the smartest enemy that humankind has ever encountered. Should we step back and kind of like talk about like the main story that's like happening on Earth at the same time? Because like if we go back in time, then we get to talk about Alfred Woodard and James Cromwell and the crime against humanity that is the fact that they barely interact in this movie. I'm so pissed about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because, again, I think the makers of this movie are so invested in the Star Trekiness of it that they don't realize that the entry point for everyone else is Alfre Woodard and James Cromwell. Yeah, those two actors are both so interesting and great. I feel like James Cromwell is the soul of a 25-year-old eternally trapped in the body of like a 60-year-old. Like he's having so much fun in this movie. He's just like lanky and everywhere and like having a great time. And like Alfre's so good in it as well. I want to say, I don't understand how she looks younger than she did in Heart and Souls, which was three years earlier, but like she somehow does. She's really good because she's Alfred Woodard, but like they give her just kind of a lot of yelling to do. I would have liked to have seen at least one scene of what life on Earth was like before the attack, because like casting those two actors and then not letting them interact is like a crisis as far as I'm concerned. You're right that she is given an incredibly hard job because I don't think either her character or James Cromwell's character 
makes a lot of linear sense when you look at like their actual beats in the story like she's constantly in crisis so i will absolutely forgive that like most of what she does is yelling because they're just like hey you're being thrown onto a future spaceship that is about to be taken over by an alien species you've never seen before that is fucking terrifying like i'd yell too but then there's also the way that like everyone on that ship just fucking abandons her as soon as she wakes up in like a foreign situation the doctor that is supposed to be taking care of her is like i'm sorry i can't be bothered to track this one extra body on the team you go ahead and fuck off somewhere else i'll never notice yeah maybe don't put her last and the same goes for what they do with james crom it's like everyone on the enterprise is so obtuse or like so used to the idea of spaceflight that they absolutely cannot empathize with two people who are in a really tough situation. Like, they've just learned about aliens for the first time, full stop. They've just learned that people have come from the future on a spaceship. I have a note here later from the movie that's like, you guys, you're explaining too much to him about spaceflight. It's too much pressure. That hippie's gonna run. And then he did. <laughs> like, they didn't take a second to be like, hey, I'm sure this is really tough for you to understand. We are in a crisis right now, so I need you to do the following three things. But like, I will explain this to you in a way that like makes sense as a human to a human person. Like they just seem completely unable to like relate to the people. Yeah, I had a lot of notes about their approach with James Cromwell. I mean, in general, as soon as that away team lands on Earth, they're like, let's be conspicuous. Like there's no sneaking. They sent data. He is a man with a silver face. What was the plan, guys? They seem to have no plan other than find James Cromwell. At some point, someone mentioned something about like, oh, that doesn't jive with our backstory or whatever. But I'm like, what is your fucking backstory? You are a group of 10 weird looking strangers who have descended on this place that just got attacked. Like, there's no way to not be suspicious, but you are doing nothing to minimize it. Or just own it. Show up and be like, hey, guys, here's what's up. Instead, they functionally just like get drunk at a bar. They scare James Cromwell. Like, they have absolutely no plan. Like, it's insane that this is, like, the elite team of space people. And like you said, like, I get that there's a lot of pressure, but historically we know that this was 24 hours before James Cromwell was ready to make this flight. So even with the attack, he should functionally be ready to make that flight and everything about what happens in this movie suggests that he is months if not years away from being emotionally ready to do what historically we already know that he did i'm gonna get into some time travel questions in a second but first of all it was really irritating having number one and lavar burton in the capsule with him because they were being so obnoxious and they're like, just wait till you see what happens. Like, and it was like, guys, calm the fuck down. Like you need him to accomplish this and stop being so smug and let him have the experience of this crazy thing that you guys say that you love and that he's a big hero to you. And they're just acting like <laughs> land dork. Like it's so, it's such a weird reaction to them. Like, why are they there at all? He did this by himself the first time, right? I mean, I was wondering if maybe like Alfre Woodard was historically supposed to be there. And so he needed like somebody, but they do very actively take over every aspect of this. It's not clear at any point how James Cromwell and Alfre Woodard got this far along if they seem to need this much help at the last leg of the journey. And so that raises the time travel question for me, which is, does this happen because the team from the Enterprise is there in the first place? But that kind of can't be because... A, they've caused a problem, which is that, like, James Cromwell and Alfred Woodard now know about what happens, like, 300 years in the future. And are they just supposed to keep that to themselves for the whole rest of their lives? But B, like, if the crew of the Enterprise is, like, involved in this space flight, does it mean that this space flight wouldn't have actually happened without the crew of the Enterprise being on it in the first place? Their level of involvement makes it 
very difficult to parse that whole aspect of the story. It would have been a much smarter thing if like the crew on the ground had to have a level of subtlety and actually managed it. And they were like, hey, we're traveling mechanics and we're going to help you repair this ship so you can get it ready. And James Cromwell could still be the smart, capable leader that he obviously was to get 99% of the way there. The other issue that I had was that, like, if he's just, like, a drunk who doesn't want to do this, and who's only in it, we learn later, because he thinks he'll get rich off of it, then how did he even get this far? He's just like a putz. They kind of get set up where LeVar Burton and Number One are, like, kind of disappointed that their hero isn't everything they thought he was. It's just weird. They were super obnoxious. I was like, ugh, like, let this scene end. Like, let James Cromwell, like, interact with people who aren't these people from the Enterprise. Like, I don't want to hear from them anymore. (laughs) Riker, in particular, comes off real bad. He's just a dick. Yeah, he's just a big old cheese. And that is, as always, the problem of directing yourself in a movie because there's no one there to be like, hey, man, maybe let's dial that back about 10% and make some other choices. I also have a lot of questions about how society is structured on Earth because they only really focus on this one tiny settlement. We we learn that every single alien that ever lands on this planet or interacts with this planet only does so in the middle of Montana for some reason, where there are <laughs> 15 people in tents. When aliens land at the end, spoiler alert, the person that takes charge is, again, James Cromwell. But I'm like, even if this were a decentralized situation where for some reason the American government no longer exists, like, Mm -hmm. there's not like a mayor in this town. (laughs) It's just James Cromwell and Alfie Woodard. And also, like, she's had experience with aliens. Like, maybe she should step forward. Again, they boil everything down to a manageable for TV level. And what that means is that there are two 21st century human beings that talk in the entire fucking movie. There's a scene at the beginning where there's all these Borg attacks that just happen as audio. And I'm like, how many dollars were saved? Simply like not showing you what's happening right now. I had the exact same note that it's like a radio drama. (laughs) And they do it again later where they show a lot of Borg's eye view of things so that you can (laughs) know that there is a Borg there without anyone having to do the makeup. (laughs) But spent the money to have the Borg queen's body like go into a body thing. Like, why is that necessary? She could just be a different Borg. Like, it's very silly. Oh, the Borg queen special effect is their signature special effect. It's in the Wikipedia page. They clearly spent a lot of money on it and... Uh, I guess like uh... <laughs> look it looks great their budget is 45 million oh that's not a lot by the time you're done paying for all these actors I'm sure they couldn't have gotten a penny more than that for a fucking Star Trek movie so the radio play does eventually go into an actual special effects battle yeah. scene and they do get their one like Borg queen insert and there are like a couple other minor special effects things. Yeah, there's like the cube and stuff and, and, and some of the stuff at the beginning. But I don't know how much it... Did they lift any of the stuff from those particular episodes where Picard gets turned? No, only because, like I said, the TV stuff looked so much worse. You can't imagine. Like, for instance, <laughs> a big development in the movie is that the Borg have this sort of like veiny textured skin In the TV show, it is literally just, like, white pancake makeup. Everyone's just a fucking mime. (sighs) I actually, like I said, for me, the way that the Borg work is quite terrifying. Like, where they actually, like, put things into your body Mm -hmm. and, like, make your body different. Like, that's kind of one of my things. Like, I don't like that type of body horror. I would not say I was, like, scared or horrified in this movie. But it is affecting. So, like, there's actually kind of an interesting story here. It's just that so much of it felt, like, bogged down by, like, TV shtick Mm -hmm. that it just kind of, like, didn't lift off, if you will. In some ways, it's almost too complicated. There is time travel... There is the need to get an earthbound warp speed space program off the ground. There's the need to get one specific man away from his drunken fear into becoming a hero. There's a whole Enterprise ship that is maybe being taken over and maybe needs to be blown up. 
And there's a 21st century woman who is either lost or the only person who can talk down the ship's captain. Like, there's so much <laughs> happening. Yeah. And so much of it just felt forced. Like it just it was really clear that pieces had been storyboarded and then we were just writing around those pieces. As with every Alfre Woodard movie, I have an ingrained in my brain line reading. So I was <laughs> waiting this entire movie for her to scream at him, blow up the damn ship, which is like, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say the best line in the movie. She didn't know what a spaceship was like 20 <laughs> minutes ago. And now she's fully like, blow this fucker up. Out of the sky, asshole. I liked, you broke your little ships. See you around, Ahab. My favorite part of See Around is like, where the fuck is she going? <laughs> she's just, she's literally going into the next room because she doesn't know where else to go on the ship. And also the next room is the bridge or the decision making capital of the ship <laughs> where only the senior officers are allowed. She should not be any of these places. A way to get around that would be like if she was the mayor of the town or something or like had a leadership role in the town, if there was some reason why they wouldn't just be like, okay, we saved you from the Borg. Um, Time to beam you right on down. Well, so they do lose contact with Earth. They cannot beam her. Oh, okay. But it's only because of plot that we didn't just like assign a lower ranked person to just fucking watch her. I do like that Stuart and Woodard get to interact quite a bit because like, you know, acting masterclass. But again, a scene between the three of them. I don't think James Cromwell ever actually meets Patrick Stewart in this movie. And it makes me really sad for the lost opportunity. Yeah, that's this movie's version of failing the Bechdel test, I think. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Does this movie pass the Bechdel test? Yes, I believe. Yeah, because the doctor, they talk about her health and having to get away from the Borg. Yay, we did it. It grazes on by, but we like we just get there. It also kind of feels like two different movies because there's this like horrible horror movie happening like on the Enterprise. And then on Earth, there's like a zany hippie comedy happening where they're just like, can we get this spaceship off the ground? And they're so at odds with each other. And I think that's like one of the reasons why it feels a little jarring sometimes, because like I said, James Cromwell seems like he's having a great time. Again, going back to this feels like TV, I think they're very admired in the A plot, B plot structure that you would do yes. for an episode of TV because the stories don't connect and they ought. There's no way to break this down into like the classic three act structure that you'd have with a movie. Yeah. There's also kind of a level of like science seriousness that Star Trek always feels like it has to me. I think like the sort of general divide between the two camps is like Star Trek versus Star Wars, right? And like Star Wars, the early ones were just like space westerns. One side of the movie was having a little bit too much fun and one side of the movie was not having quite as much fun as it maybe should have. On that note, I want to get to a part of the... No not fun movie no. that I think was trying no. to have fun. If it's what I think it is, I don't want to talk about it at all. The holodeck scene? <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about Data and the Queen like having sexy time at all. Oh, I we're, no, we're going to get there. I, I, I know no. that we're holding that off. In the not fun section of the movie on the ship, they try to inject some zany fun by bringing Captain Picard onto the holodeck, which is like a convention on the TV series that there is a holographic suite where people can go have like fun vacation times. Oh my God, is that what that fucking like 1930s stuff is about? So the concept <sighs> of the holodeck is that you can go and have a holographic experience as like recreation. You can go and create whatever you want. They make the insane choice that Picard tries to hide in a holographic simulation of like a gangster novel. I've excised so much of it from my brain. Like I don't even remember like... <laughs> When I, I maybe I didn't even take any notes about it. It's bonkers. I don't know. I don't have anything. Why was the gun real? It, it, what? Well, that's my main complaint about that section is that in the end, Picard was trying to get the gun that's in that chapter of that story. Yeah. But if all he needed was a holographic gun, then all he had to do was walk in there and be like, computer, generate a gun. Like, why is the rest of it there? <laughs> I don't know. And also, like, 
you know, it was useful to have Ward be like, hey, they keep adapting. So we're probably going to get like 12 shots off before they adapt. But eventually it was like one shot. But also what seemed to work really effectively and would seem to resist adaptation is just snapping their damn necks because that seemed like it worked every time. (laughs) I don't know why they didn't employ that more often. And on that note, the reason that they can adapt is because they're adapting to whatever like future space light based phaser weapons. But real bullets seem to kill them just fine in the holodeck. If you have a computer that can make real guns, you should be making a lot of real guns. I did. Did find my notes from from the scene. I said, "Is this the 1940s thing a thing? I have no idea what this is." <laughs> and my other note was, "Elfrey, the dress is gorgeous, but who gave you those gloves?" <laughs> those are my those are my only notes from the section. She did look fabulous in that dress. I love that dress. I was really happy that she got to wear one beautiful dress in this movie. To be honest, I now know that I have the notes from it because I remembered that Alfie was wearing a good dress. Other than that, it did not make an implant in my mind because it had no bearing on anything else that happened. The series does a thing where they will stage an entire episode on the holodeck. We're going to put the whole cast in a Western once mm-hmm. every season because we can or something, you know, like along those lines. So it's a very fan service thing to be like, oh, we're doing something jarring with time as a throwback to how we do that once in a while. But because they don't explain what the fuck that is, it's see, it's just thrown out of space. It makes no fucking sense. And you have the perfect reason to explain it to someone because what does Alfre Woodard think of all of this? She's just like, yoinks, I'm in a dress. Like, what the fuck? She must have just been so confused. One of the bigger pacing problems of this movie. And there are many. This movie is one giant pacing problem. The choice of when to slow down and explain everything to Alfre Woodard and when not to is a real crapshoot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at certain points, they seem like they've got nothing but time. And at other points, it's like a crisis situation. Like, for instance, getting back to the idea that the Borg only threaten you if you're threatening. Why are 20 Borg trying to break into the medical bay? If they don't want to attack you unless you're doing something threatening, how do they ever take over ships? Nothing about the Borg makes sense in this because, yeah, they're at once the most deadly opponent of all time and fully willing to just let you wander amongst them. Can we have a sort of deeper conversation about what the critique of the Borg is? Because at first I was like, oh, this is a critique of socialism, right? We're like, you're all just cogs in a machine and blah, blah, blah. Except then, and it's sort of related to James Cromwell later being like, I'm just doing this shit to make money. And they're like, well, we don't use money in the future because like we're only concerned with space and beauty and humanity and like your silly capitalistic concerns are like so beneath us. And I was like, oh, so you guys are the socialists. So are these the communists? There's maybe like a Nazi undertone in that they're not offering for you to join. They are conquering. Yeah. In the series, I think they're more obviously a totalitarian situation. I mean, drone doesn't sound good. I don't really want to be assimilated just so I can be a drone. Well, that's the other thing. And like, we're going to have to get to her eventually. But this is the first appearance of the Borg Queen, who has a sentience and a personality outside of the collective. In every other appearance from the Borg, they are all completely mindless, completely Mm. the same, and they don't really speak ever. They take you over. There's no interaction. There's no knowing why. Okay. So is her explanation that they are trying to like perfect their culture the first kind of explanation of like their deal? Yes. The only other time you ever heard the Borg speak on the TV series, what they would do is they would layer like 20 people speaking in unison, the cube would roll up and like the entire ship is talking to you in one voice. It's fascinating because I just had so many questions were like, okay, so what's the end goal? So like if the entire galaxy or entire universe becomes Borg, did we do it? What happens once perfection is achieved? I don't feel like I was as anti-Borg perhaps as I should have been. They seemed like maybe they were not on the level, but I was just kind of like, well, I'm into collectives. (laughs) (laughs) Viewing this through a 2020 lens is different because I think, you know, we were a lot more pro-capitalism in the 90s than we are now. Uh, So there is like a push and pull of, on the one hand, no, I don't want someone to put a drill in my eye. That's not nice. Yeah, that wasn't for me. I looked away. 
Okay, I think the moment has arrived. (laughs) Yeah, we have to talk about Data and the Borg Queen, which is the C plot of this movie. (laughs) It's the F plot as far as I'm concerned. Let's get into it. Tell me your thoughts on Data and the Borg Queen. So I texted you last night to tell you that I had to look this lady up because she's just got a a jawbone for days. And I was like, I feel like I know who she is. Oh, God, I can't wait to find out what this is. I have been desperate. And it took every molecule of my willpower to not look her up on IMDb as you instructed me not to. Yeah, because I told you not to look her up because I'm really I'm convinced that like it's not going to be the movies, but it's going to be this that ends it, which is that... I recognized her from the multiple Netflix A Christmas Prince movies. (laughs) She plays the Queen Mother. (laughs) I don't. I I was just like, I know I recognized her. And I was just like, I was scrolling. (laughs) What are the Netflix... A Christmas Prince movies. <laughs> I want you to know that I did not watch these movies of my own volition. My partner loves like cheesy romantic comedy shit. <laughs> no, but I, also, but I also want you to know that I've watched A Christmas Prince multiple times. <laughs> Wait, but you, I believe you described this as not one movie, but a series of films. There are now, I think, three. I'll tell you what, if I had looked at her IMDb page, gun to my head, I would never have said that that is the credit that you knew her from. I'm going to bring us back to the ground. We have to talk about... No, let's talk more about her IMDb page. I'll do anything to not talk about the moment where she blows on his skin and he goes, ooh. I I know, I know. Okay, so... To put some context around this, okay. I agree that everything about their interaction is uncomfortable. There is a hair of justification if, A, you have watched many more years of data trying to become more human, and B, if you have more experience with the Borg as a collective, the appearance of a weirdly sensual weirdly unique Borg is a really interesting take on a villain that has thus far been faceless and without distinction. And predominantly male, like even though they seem to take over a lot of like female or femme bodies, all the ones that you see seem to be pretty androgynous or kind of gearing towards male. I do have a generalized critique that the Borg seem to be all male and all human. For a species that is known for taking over everyone they see, we don't see any diversity in them whatsoever. Yeah, and also like all white. Yeah, we have a Klingon on the bridge of this ship, but there are no Klingon Borg. Maybe they are Nazis. They only wanted the white ones and the male ones. (laughs) But the conceptual choice to add a Borg queen who could speak for the collective makes narrative sense. Mm -hmm. What they do with her ends up being very uncomfortable. I don't know why she is an 11 on the sexuality scale. Again, from an outsider's perspective, it does seem like Data is like kind of the heart of the show. Like it it seems like the movie is very interested in his like narrative journey about wanting to become more human. So I was kind of interested in the idea of like the skin being grafted onto him and like what that would mean and kind of the subplot of like, is this going to change him and blah, 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 blah. In fact, my notes say Data being tempted by flesh is interesting, but no sex. And then right below that, no, I don't like the sex. It felt like somebody decided, this is a movie, there should be some romantic subplot of some kind. And the only real options were between like Jonathan Frakes and and James Cromwell, between Alfre Woodard and Patrick Stewart, or between the Borg Queen and Data. And so they went with the worst possible option. I think there is an interesting idea in that, as we have known the Borg previously, they are all about a hostile takeover. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting to juxtapose that with a leader who is 
seductive about wanting to invite you in Mm -hmm. but i think Mm -hmm. making that seduction literal was a terrible choice like there's a difference between being enticing and being charismatic and just being like hey do you want to fuck and then join me (laughs) yeah and you know maybe data has that aspect to his personality in the show but like being unfamiliar with it to me he was just like i kind of want to learn what it's like to be human and she was just like here's some skin now let's fuck and I was like, ah, no, it, it, like it just was like too far, too fast. And and uh. I think the culmination should have been her blowing on his arm hair because there's a lot of discomfort in the not so subtle sexuality of that action. Yeah. And we get enough from that that we don't need it to be like, also, I want to know if your dick works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in the writing of the script, they were like, oh, it would be interesting if she was sensual. And I don't think they trusted that the audience would pick up on that or that they would get an actress who is so deeply able to convey a sexual undertone to lines that do not have that undertone written in. I'll tell you, I'm never going to watch A Christmas Prince the same way. (laughs) (laughs) I I do want to give Alice Kriege all of the credit because like... She has that I'm seducing you undertone to all of her lines. Like she's she does a great job in the role. Yeah, she's extremely good. I actually don't have any critiques of her performance, just what she was asked to do in a similar way to Alfie Woodard, right? Where I'm just like, I hate that you're having to say these lines, but you're giving it all you have. And I feel the same way about Alex Creek or Creech. I was so worried about finding out what you had seen her in. Usually I would have looked up like a YouTube clip of someone introducing her on TV, but I refused to do that out of respect for your request. Yeah, and I feel bad. We haven't even talked about Patrick Stewart at all. He's just such a steady actor. Like it, he kind of disappears because you're just like, oh yeah, he's doing a fine job. Like it doesn't even matter because like he's just doing such good work. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Patrick Stewart's arms in this movie thank you i definitely wrote zaddy patrick stewart look at that little tank top the escape from the borg queen at the end makes less than no sense but it is fully justified because i would do anything to put patrick stewart's arms in a movie like holy shit (laughs) i told you this movie was like a little gay (laughs) i hadn't even watched it and i was right because also everyone's like real sweaty for about the last hour of it I know that he's straight, but like he has like a sort of I think he's got kind of a little bit of a queer vibe to him, like and especially like the way they like outfit him and the fact that he's like sweaty as hell. And then like that tank top. Come on. I think that was pitched at the female fans, but I think it hit the gay fans. Like, yeah, I was just like, oh, man, look at those arms. But I wasn't like, does all the genitalia work? And when was the last time you used it to to put it in the way that like I think normal women ask men if they want to have sex? Is that right? Is that what I learned from the Borg Queen? Oh, I think what you learned from the Borg Queen is that this show does not have enough female writers. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds accurate. I mean, in fairness, she's a totally alien species who's hell bent on assimilating everyone into a Nazi-ish collective. So I'm not sure that like we super vibe. But yeah, I think in general, probably any women writing on any of this programming would probably be good. I mean, I think there is commentary to be gleaned from the fact that their idea of the most terrifying leader in the world is a sexy woman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's really fucking true. I even like that her like Borg outfit is like low cut. Like, come on now. Like, what are we up to? The other issue with that like final confrontation is that in the end, it's sort of implied that like it's pretty easy to outsmart the Borg. The Borg as a species only want to take people over. And then they set up this thing where like, oh, but the Queen wants someone to give over willingly, which like why why and then like both picard and data are like okay whatever you say and no part of the collective knowledge of however many millions of species they've assimilated is like maybe they're lying and then they are and that's how they 
completely escape this absolutely unwinnable situation. Okay, so I took it as that Picard was serious, that he was going to sacrifice himself for Data, and that Data was the one who was lying. Hmm. So I guess what we're supposed to take away from it is that perhaps because they essentially rely on organic life with like module like with animatronic modulations right Mm -hmm. whereas data being like a completely different brain form essentially like might have been able to lie to her in a way that no one else was but also like data my dude what was your long-term plan like was he just hoping that patrick stewart was going to come for him they do set up at the beginning of this movie and i only caught this because I have watched it many times, that they are trying to break those tubes to let out that green gas that destroys all organic matter. So Data knows going in that that is their entire team's goal. Give it a smash, bud. Yeah, (laughs) he waits until the last possible second. And I'm like, if you had the free will to break this earlier, why did you wait until the highest ranking officer on this ship was at risk of being killed by the gas. (laughs) Also, is that a good gas tube to have on a (laughs) ship that's totally full of organic matter in an otherwise, like, normal situation? Like, it just feels like Chekhov's big tube of organic killing matter mass. (laughs) Yeah, you might want to make it a little less easy to shatter if it's going to kill everyone around. Um, I would like to give... A serious shout out, though, to the writers for possibly the best and smartest thing I've ever seen in a movie, which is (laughs) the ship will explode in 15 minutes. There will be no further audio warnings. I was like, thank you. Yes. The ship was just like, y'all have 15 minutes. Bye con Dios. I'm like, good luck to you. (laughs) That was the highlight of the film as far as I was concerned. I don't know. I I don't really have anything else for that. Like I said, I did not know that a star of the show directed the film and also two of the writers for the show wrote the film. I get that that probably works from like a fan service perspective, but they just made a two hour TV show. They didn't actually make a movie. Right down to the fact that at the end, they're like, well, the crew and the ship have to get back to the future. So let's make sure that happens without explaining a single part of that. Yeah, how are they going to do that? There's no indicator that they have the time travel technology that the Borg have when they started, yet somehow at the end of the movie, they're just like, uh, we're just going to go back to our usual time frame now. Don't worry about it. (laughs) One of my favorite things from earlier is when Picard is going to go down with the ship or is going to try to save Data. And he... He gives uh, Alfred Wood- Lily, Alfred Woodard's character, that note that's like, all right, well, tell everyone goodbye and to live like 21st century Montanans. Okay, bye. He's like, if A, he says, if you see them, if you see them, just leave them and just let them know to like lay low Try in the to- 21st century. At, like for the rest of their lives. Like, yeah, because that's where they, they are 21st century Americans at this point. And P.S., If we've established anything over the past day, it's that they are not good at laying low as 21st century Americans. Like, they're real bad at this. They're going to have some trouble. I feel like Warg in particular is really going to strike out. Oh, my God. Yeah, Worf with his like, they're like, he's just going to. I'm sorry. I've called him Warg. It's Worf. I'm sorry. I think I've I knew that his name started with W, but there's a lot of talk of Borgs. Yeah, so I get I, it. every time that I've called him Warg, please just know that I meant Worf. But yeah, he's just going to need to invest in like a lot of, I don't know, bandanas. Like what's what's the workaround? <laughs> the what? That go down to his nose? <laughs> oh, that's true. It, I mean, like <laughs> his forehead is my main concern because it's a lot. We also need to give a special shout out to a tiny baby Adam Scott, what? who is in this movie. I recognized his ass. He's on, I think he's on Warg's ship. I think he's like the... the Worf. S- fuck. I think he's on Worf's ship. I think he's like the guy who's steering that ship. Okay. I, when watching this, had this moment of like, do I recognize the like navigator on Worf's ship? Well, funny enough, he was in A Christmas Prince. No, he's not. Oh, yeah, he's fuck not. you. <laughs> <laughs> but was that Adam Scott? 
Yeah, it's Adam Scott. He's super young in it. Yeah, I checked his IMDb page because I was like, I feel really sure that that was Adam Scott. That's wild. You know what? Good yeah. for him because he's yeah. a gigantic nerd. So I'm sure that that was like really fulfilling for him. Oh, my God. I bet you're right. I like that I can recognize Adam Scott like 20 years in the past and like and behind like a melange of like things blowing up around him. But like Dustin Hoffman can't do it. <laughs> Speaking of recognizability, sort of the last thing that happens in this movie is that humankind makes first contact with an alien race. And it distinctly bothered me this time that someone, I think Alfrey Woodard, is like, oh my god, they really are from another world. And I'm like, this just looks like a human. You've seen way weirder stuff in the past couple hours, because until they take their hood off and you see the pointy ears, it just looks like a human being. I mean, a starship did just land in their town. But like, my first thought when someone got off that would be, that is a human being. The very end of the movie is also really confusing because like, his ship goes up, but it's not clear that it comes back down. So then he was suddenly back there. Alfred Witter is also back there. They don't seem like they've had a conversation about the bananas 24 hours that the two of them have had. And then they're apparently never going to speak of this to anyone else. So that's the end of this movie. Are there any closing thoughts you have other than resentment for me, for me making you watch this, which I will accept? I don't have any resentment. I'm not going to pick this one up again. It, it just, it was too long. And it was, I, there is like a, an actually like probably really solid two episodes of television that I would watch out of this. I don't know. I'm just not really a Trekkie. And this movie did not do a good job of trying to bring me into the fold. For me, this was like visiting a previous version of myself like it was really interesting to see i was like oh god i loved this series mm -hmm. in high school i loved this movie in high school and going back to it i was like okay so that part of me is done now like i will also never Aww. revisit this movie again no I know come on parts of it were fun now i'm gonna make the argument for the movie for you no like <laughs> I'm glad to have rewatched it once more and like mm -hmm. took in what I needed to take in. I would rather go back to episodes of the TV show again okay. than watch this movie again because I don't think it's an ultimately overall successful piece. Eventually we're going to watch Empire Strikes Back. I'll be interested to see your your reaction to Empire if it does a good job of reintroducing the characters in case you had not seen Star Wars. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do it next time, though, because um, I have some other ideas. Okay, so if we are not watching The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> I am. I have a feeling that I know what you're going to say right now, and I'm not thrilled about it. <laughs> what movie are we going to watch, Brian? I like that you are you won't make eye contact with me, and you're just looking away. So I did a little bit of math in terms of like how far ahead we are, and it's going to hit a little late, but fuck it. We're going to watch A Christmas Prince. Oh, I knew you were going to say this. God fucking damn it, Brie. <laughs> it's going to hit sometime in January, but you know what? People are still going to love it because we're all going to be trapped in our homes. I have nothing to recommend this other than it is ridiculous and schmaltzy. But it is also incredibly funny because it is the most fail-hard representation of journalism I've ever seen in my entire life. And our favorite friend, who's a Borg queen, is in it, so you'll already have a, a point of access to it. You haven't closed your mouth since I said A Christmas Prince. I just cannot believe that you've even seen this movie once, let alone that you feel <laughs> that it is a favorite to be revisited. I don't think that you should be up on your high horse right now. I think you should I think you should take your medicine. You know what? You're right. I did just make you watch a Star Trek movie, so I don't have a leg to stand on here. Yeah, you had not revisited this movie in some time, and I think that if you had, you might not have put it in the queue. Okay, that is fair. I want to be real clear that it occurred to me when we took a quick break in the middle that I had not thought about what movie I was going to be assigning next. So... This also was kind of a, a real easy way for me to push that one on through and not have to think more deeply. So that is the sensibility that you should take into watching Netflix's A Christmas Prince. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. I'm excited to see Alice Kriege, or however you say her last name, 
in something else. She's great in it. We know that she can work with a subpar script. (laughs) (laughs) And she does. All right, everyone, we will see you next week when we watch this movie. uh, End of sentence. (laughs) And in the meantime, you can find us on social media at on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. You can also find us on Twitter at Replaying Faves. You can unsubscribe by clicking the unsubscribe button before we watch A Christmas Prince. But we hope that you won't because, you know what? It's not good, but it is fun. A lot like this movie. Yeah, and a lot like our podcast. You should leave that exact yeah. review below. You should rate us five stars whether or not we deserve it. Yeah. Because I said so. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. And we're so sorry in advance, but it's going to be great. You're going to love it. Okay, goodbye. Bye. (laughs) Welcome back from break. If you are just, why would you just be tuning in? This make any sense.